Hey guys. And there we go. Howdy. Morning. Hey, how you doing, Pedro? Hey, pretty good, pretty good. And you, man? Oh, I'm awake. <laughs> <laughs> Hosting and bandwidth provided by the Blue Box Group. Check them out at bluebox.net. This episode is sponsored by JetBrains, makers of RubyMine. If you like having an IDE that provides great inline debugging tools, built-in version control, and intelligent code insight and refactorings, check out RubyMine by going to jetbrains.com ruby. This podcast is sponsored by New Relic. To track and optimize your application's performance, go to rubyrogues.com slash newrelic. Hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 71 of the Ruby Rogues podcast. This week on our uh, panel, we have Avdi Grimm. Hello from Pennsylvania. We have Josh Susser. Hey, good morning, everyone. James Edward Gray. Chuck, we're going to need to use my formal title from now on. Is that your majesty? Kind of like your worship? <laughs> no, I'm, I'm going with Ninjaneer Snowflake. Ah, Okay. <laughs> our resident snowflake and we also have a special guest and that's pedro bello hey yeah good morning guys uh pedro do you want to introduce yourself really quick uh yeah for sure so uh i'm a, a developer at heroku uh, i've been working on the api right now <clears throat> uh, but i joined the company quite a few time ago so yeah i did a, quite a few different projects in there um and yeah i guess that's what i'm doing cool so um, we're going to be talking about zero downtime deploys, which sounds kind of interesting to me. I, I keep hearing the term, um, and, and for some reason, my mind conflates it with continuous deployment, which I guess is a different idea. So zero downtime deploy means that you run your deploy and your users don't see the site go down for even a second, right? Exactly, exactly. Uh, I think that's the idea. You don't, there is not a single user that is affected by the deploy, right? It could be, and, and not only like 500 errors, like we're talking about like assets, uh, they, they show properly, like they don't get any weird like CSS from the previous version uh, or anything like that, right? Right. So, so aside from just niceness, why is that important? That is a great question. I, I wouldn't think it's that important. Like, uh, like a, a year ago, or, or you know, this is something that started growing on me as, as together with the growth of the Heroku API, right? So uh, in the beginning, we had like let's say five requests a second or something like this, uh, and at that point, you don't, you don't, uh, it doesn't hurt you too much, right? Like maybe you see one five hundred or another on, on a deploy, but that's like very rare. But now, if you're talking about a website that has a hundred, uh, hundreds of calls uh, a second, then as soon as something goes wrong in a deploy, you're like you see like 20, <clears throat> 20 exceptions or even more. So, I think when you have a big site, it becomes uh, pretty important. So you can like establish trust with your customers, right? They they don't want to get five hundreds; they rely on you, uh, and and that's why I think it's pretty important. Right. I, I I guess some of it really is just related to revenue. If you if you think about Amazon, I mean they they deploy, I don't know how often they deploy, but I've never seen them be down. And I think they, they calculate their res, their revenue in like millions of dollars per second. So if, <laughs> if, if they have to take the, the site down for a few minutes to do a deploy, that would be, you know, a big impact to their revenue. Oh my God. Yeah. Also, I, I mean, to me, it kind of encourages that continuous deployment thing, right? If there's no um, you know, the always be deploying meme. I'm not really talking about continuous integration, but uh, if you, if there's no cost to deploying, right, then why not do it? Right? Yeah. Right. What, I, what I loved about this uh, idea, I, um, I saw Pedro uh, give this talk um, on the videos at RailsConf about zero downtime deploys. And what I love about this topic is I was like, Thinking at the time, well, everybody knows how to do that. You just use Unicorn, right? And and then <laughs> if you go and listen to Pedro's song, you'll see it's actually a very complicated thing to do, you know, a zero downtime deploy. And you have to consider a lot of aspects of how it's going to go and what's going to happen. And so it's one of those talks where you go, you think, oh, yeah, I know how to do that. And then it, it gets pretty deep. So, Pedro, why don't you tell us what are what are some of the things you have to consider to really get it right? 
Yeah, for sure. So, uh, so yeah, like you mentioned, I think uh, Unicorn is only part of the problem, right? Which would be the server uh, environment. But now, before that comes into play, there is a there is a bunch of aspects that uh, that a developer has to consider. Uh, and the typical example I give to begin with is is just migrations, right? There's a lot of cases where migrations <clears throat> can cause uh, weird things to array of processes. Uh, and one example, a simple, I guess, I guess the simplest example is uh, dropping a field, right? So you, let's say you, you remove all the code that is reading and writing to some column in the database. Uh, and at that point, you, you might think, yeah, I'm safe to deploy this. So you write a migration that dropped this field. And the second you run this migration, all the Rails processes that are running, uh, they're going to start throwing errors, right? Whenever they try to save uh, a record in that table. And that's, of course, because they, they cache the columns. So Rails is trying to set uh, a new one that column, and then Postgres or your, your database is telling Rails like, hey, uh, this, this column doesn't exist anymore, right? So, right, yeah, that's a, a great point. What you're basically saying is that because Rails has already loaded those models into memory, and it really just checks like the first time it tries to access that table, it gets a list of some field names and it thinks are always there. And then if you do some migration and then try to save, it may try to set that field name to something which isn't going to be there anymore. So. Exactly. So and a lot of people, yeah, sorry. Uh, yeah, and a lot of people confuse this with, there's a command, I believe, to tell Rails to recache the, the columns. And a lot of people think they can put that on the migration after they change the table and the, everything will be fine. But that, of course, doesn't affect the running processes, right? That, that only allows you to use the field that you just added on your migration inside the migration. Uh, so it's right. something to think about. Right. Now, how, how does that play with like um, Rails' more recent like dirt, uh, dirty handling, though, right? If you don't If you don't try to set that field, will it not try to put it in, I think? Uh, that is a great question. I had a, I have more experience with Rails too, unfortunately. Uh, but now, dirty handling does that apply to new records too? Yeah, that's a good question. I don't know. That's a good I, question. I have a feeling, at least on Rails too. Well, yeah, I, I can say for sure if they have that on Rails too. But I have a feeling it's only for updates. Yeah, you may be right about that. In an update scenario, as long as you don't change that particular field, then it wouldn't be sent. But I, I'm not sure about a new record. Exactly, yeah. So let's, let's actually take one step back, though. We kind of glossed over the whole Unicorn thing. Why don't we talk about what Unicorn is actually doing to achieve a zero downtime? Right, so, so Unicorn would be on the, on the server front, right? Like the, the issue there is that usually you want to run several uh, processes like running your application, right? So you can serve requests to multiple users at the same time. Uh, but now the problem with that is that bouncing servers is always pretty messy. Like there is no way that you can bounce a bunch of servers at the same time. So you need to coordinate this work. You need to find a way that you can bounce servers without, of course, affecting the requests that are coming in, right? Uh, so Unicorn does that by forking. So basically the Unicorn process can always respond to requests even when it's bouncing, right? When you ask Unicorn to bounce, it will fork the master process, like put new workers. And while this is happening, it's still answering to requests on the old master, right? And then once the new master is ready to go, it will eventually start receiving the request and then kill the old master. And it does that. You know, it's beautiful, right? It does that all inside the process. You don't have to worry about it. Uh, and it's, yeah, it's pretty amazing. Right. So, uh, you know, we talked about, um, we had an episode a while back about uh, Jesse Stormer's working with Unix processes and, and using that terminology. Basically, it just forks another master and because they share the accepting socket, then the new master can just start accepting things off of that same socket and feeding it to its, its own set of workers, which are using that, you know, the updated change the updated code and then uh, and then once that system's totally in place then it sends kill signals to the to the old master so that it will eventually stop serving requests exactly but now in my experience at least so uh, unicorn addressed the the uh, you know the hard compatibility issue like it addressed the issue of bouncing the server without losing requests but now you still probably want to have something else in your stack, like a load balancer, so you, you are more resilient to, to losing uh, instances, right? If you have one box with a unicorn process running, like let's say 10 workers, uh, you probably want to be more resilient if this box goes down, your request should go to another, right? 
so I don't know, in my experience, uh, even though Unicorn helps a lot with the zero downtime deploys, you still will end up with another uh, component on your stack. That's it. That's a good point. Um, and not everybody uses Unicorn, right? Sometimes uh, there's good reasons to use something like Finn, say, because you want the event machine backend or something like that to do some, you know, kind of event-driven processing. Right on. Uh, so I, I have a question about the the unicorn and um, and killing processes in the midst of of handling a request. So it, so I, I can I can understand that there's a way to to write things so that that's safe. What I don't understand is what all the particular constraints are for um, for what you have to do in the controller and your models. So it you know if I'm in the middle of of doing a request and I've and say I have a couple different models that I'm modifying and I have an after commit hook on something that causes me to go update something else. If I've committed one change but I haven't committed the other change and then I kill the process in the middle of that, that seems like that could, would be a problem for my data integrity. The good news is that doesn't happen. So the way Unicorn does it is um, the old master sends a signal to its individual workers. So unicorn structure, you've got a master process accepting incoming connections, handing them down to some pool of workers, right? And uh, the master process sends a signal to the workers that basically equates to, please stop once you finish the current request. So at the end of that worker cycle, when it has completely finished your request, which means the database should be in a fine state, then that particular worker is safe to die, right? And then what that old master does is once all the workers have died, then it's good, right? Uh, so, okay, that, so makes, that makes sense. Your, your request does not actually get killed mid-request. What about new requests? New requests, uh, depending on when they come in, there's a period uh, when it's launching the new master and stuff, that some requests are going to hit your new code and some requests are going to hit your old code. But either way, it should be a stable scenario, right? And, and that the entire request is served using the old setup or the entire request is served using the new setup. Um, but, but there's no mixing. And then just as that process gets farther and farther along, the old stuff gets shut down and the new stuff is still running. So uh, requests eventually just hit the new stuff. That makes sense. But as, as Pedro's explaining, there, there's still other ways you can run into problems. Like, why don't we talk about assets? Because that's probably one of the most underlooked scenarios, right, Pedro? Oh, God, yeah. We had so many issues uh, with assets. And, and not only like Heroku itself, the Heroku API itself, but of course, most, a lot of our users, right? Uh, we got a lot of support tickets back in the day. Like, they, they do a deploy. And then, well, one of the so one of the uh, common issues on Rails too is that after you do a deploy, uh, your users wouldn't see any asset, uh, and that's because of how how it used to generate the all.js and all.css file. Uh, it would do that on demand, and it would write this file to the file system, right? So if you have it, this is not on Heroku, right? If you have any uh, architecture where you have two servers running an application or more. Uh, what happens is that one of the servers will get a request on, you know, on your home on root, uh, will generate those files, uh, but then the request to get those files is going to another server that doesn't have them yet, right? And then the process, the Rails process on that server will render a 404, and your clients won't won't see any asset, right? Right. Isn't there? There's kind of the other problem too of like, say you change some assets and then trigger the recompile and and generate the new files then isn't the problem that something going through one of those old requests might not actually have the right CSS, right? Or something like that. Exactly, exactly. That, the, the other part, yeah, that's the other side of the problem, right? Definitely uh, another thing to consider which makes assets a um, huge uh, pain in the ass, right? So like, let's talk about some of these, like uh, how, how, how can you handle assets in a safe way for both scenarios? Right. So for Rails 2, that is definitely, uh, that is a plugin. Uh, I can send the link later. I don't know how you guys do this actually. Uh, but that is a plugin that will change the way Rails generates those, those files. Uh, and it will do that on demand, I think. 
Uh, yeah, we do that on demand. So whenever you get a request, we generate the file and not when you get a request for a, for a controller, right? So if you get a request for all the JS and, and Rails doesn't have that in memory, it will create this file. Uh, so this would uh, address this issue. Uh, now, of course, Rails 3.1 and an app, they have the asset pipeline, which is, of course, I think it's a great idea. It's much better. Uh, but it does come with its own set of problems, right? Uh, and one that we notice is, is more or less like you we were talking about. So you uh, you can you can run the rake task as it's precompiled. It will create a bunch of assets on your public folder. But then if you have two versions of your application running, you want to make sure that the assets from the previous version are still available on your on your current version, right? Right. And it does by default. By default, the pipeline would do the right thing, right? Because I believe those those generated assets, they have like an MD5 hash or something in them, right? Or a stamp or timestamp. I can't remember what. But the, the danger there is like if you replace the directory that they were in, right? Right, exactly. You're right. They're, they're going to do the right thing by default. But yeah, the danger is if you, if you lose the assets from the previous version, right? They have a, a rake test to clean old assets, uh, and, and I think people normally do this, otherwise your assets folder keeps growing uh, like crazy, right? And anytime you you have a new release, you have basically a copy of all your assets again. Uh, but now the downside of this is, of course, if you clean your assets, then you can have you can have a, you can sort of for for requests from the old version, right? Right. So what else? What else do you have to think of when you're trying to actually do this right? Right. So, so migrations, we can go back that there's so many things, you know, uh, adding, well, adding columns is safe, but like adding indexes, uh, renaming columns, uh, there is a lot of things to be concerned. Uh, but now another example I give people is just, just your application itself, just a form. Uh, if you have a form, you change uh, the, the name of an input in the form, right? And now you have to consider that an old version of application might be posting to a new controller that doesn't handle uh, that uh, parameter yet, right? Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, so in this case, you know, it, it's it's a bunch of edge cases like this, and, and I wish I had a good solution. Like, hey guys, that is this jam that will address all of this for you. But I think we're not quite there, unfortunately. So basically, like every time you're changing something, you have to consider whether uh, the older version of your application is going to be okay with it. And if it's not, you have to introduce uh, a new version of application. Like, a, you know, you have to do a, basically a two-step deploy where the first deploy makes your application ready for the change you're deploying, and then the second one uses that change, right? Hmm. Yeah. The, the, or you know, the second version of the app, or you just have two versions of the application, the second one has you know, a, a bunch of compatibility stuff built into it. I've seen that done as well, exactly. although not, not, as, uh, not as systematically as you've been talking about. The, 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 so, so I have a I have sort of a, a higher level question before we uh, get too far gone on this, and and that's uh, you know one of, one of the things you hear about for uh, zero downtime deployment is AB cutovers, and you know the that's just you know you have your server running on on you know the A box, and then you deploy to the B box, and then you go fiddle the load balancer, so suddenly all of your requests are going to the new server. And, and that's, a, that's a pretty um, straightforward way of doing it, although you know, since they share a database, the, you know, all the things you've been talking about definitely apply, apply there. But it's, it's not as granular, so you don't have to deal with uh, you know, so many details. With right. the, you know, with what, you know, what, what you're talking about the, it, so, you know, at what, at what level of scale does that become impractical or do the techniques that you're talking about, uh, come, you know, lend themselves towards a better solution? That's a good question. I, I would say, let's say after like 20 to 40 requests a second, I would say we start seeing, uh, occurrences of this more regularly, right? Uh, until then, uh, I, you know, uh, I talk about this and stuff, but like I wouldn't apply those those principles to my blog, for instance, right? It's not that I don't care about my the readers, but uh, I just don't feel that I have enough readers that they will experience problems, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, but I would say after twenty to forty rec- requests a second, then yeah, there's a good chance that on a deploy you you affect your users, right? And you have to to do one of those complicated setups or one of those things to avoid issues. Okay, but. I- 
but is it is it also related to the number of of servers that you have running? Huh, that's a good question. I guess uh, that would be only be affected by how you deploy to those servers, right? Uh, in the talk, I, I give this. Uh, there is a few principles that you can use. I, I guess the most common one is that you have a load balancer. Uh, and then what you do is you take a server out of the rotation and then you bounce the servers. And at that point, you don't need a unicorn, right? You can basically just kill them. Uh, as long as they finish pro processing any requests they have on the queue, uh, the users won't experience any downtime, right? Mm -hmm. And if you have a load balancer and you do the configuration right, uh, then you can have like a thousand servers and, and this shouldn't uh, impact anything, right? Yeah, if you do it right. So you're, you're kind of talking about a rolling deploy there, right? Where you slowly take servers out of the circulation while adding new servers into the circulation. Exactly, exactly. I think that's a, a, a very common pattern and, and it works really well for us. So I'm definitely a big fan of this technique. That's, um, that's also really good if um, you do it and then you figure out something bad has happened and you need to roll back. As long as you don't kill that old server right away, then it's just a matter of reinserting it into the rotation, right? Exactly. Exactly. It's funny how we're talking about zero downtime deploys, uh, but it seems like if you get this concept right, if you if you can guarantee that two versions of your application can run at any time, then you get other benefits like this that you just mentioned, right? Maybe you can you can deploy a new version, like have five percent of your traffic going there, and if anything goes wrong, you just roll back. If everything's good, you you send all the traffic over, right? That's really cool. So at Heroku, do you have some kind of interface that like allows you to do that? Send some portion of your traffic to a new system. For Heroku users, we don't have this yet, unfortunately. Uh, we do have a flag. We have a <clears throat> an experimental feature that allows the user to tell Heroku that, okay, I know what is, you know, zero downtime, my, my application is ready for this, so you can run two versions of it uh, during deploy so I don't have downtime, right? Because one of the issues we have is, uh, say, if you have a big Rails app, like it might take a minute to boot. Uh, and Heroku, the way it works by default is that it avoids running two versions of application exactly because of all these issues we're talking about. Uh, so there is a flag where you can tell Heroku, like, I know about this problem, and then we're going to boot a new Rails process for you while still routing requests to your old one. Uh, so that's a feature we have, like it's in alpha, it's still, uh, we're still trying that out. Uh, but for sure, I hope that in the future we'll be able to offer something as powerful as, you know, uh, allowing users to route a percentage of the traffic to, to a new version. That would be amazing. Yeah, I agree. That would be really cool. So, so Pedro, are you aware of um, of similar techniques for uh, like doing stuff in JRuby? Huh, that's a great question. I don't use JRuby uh, myself. I would hope that the JVM might have some cool tricks that can help. Um, but yeah, not sure. That's a great question. Are, are any of you guys familiar with uh, JRuby? I've used it a little bit, not enough in deployment to know what the answers are, but I would... I would be pretty surprised if there's not a big Java server out there that that has good tricks for that kind of thing. Yeah, the, we, we we should ask Joe Kutner about that. Yeah, <laughs> nice. But now, of course, this uh, the server part is only part of the. Uh, I mean, the servers are only part of the issue, right? You, you, with migrations, you still have to consider, like I said, the the field that you drop from the database. I'm uh, not sure there's anything that the JVM can bring that would help uh, you dealing with this. Yeah, actually, that one's a really hard problem because even it, even you talked about, you know, deploy a version of your app where you're like ready for the change and then deploy a version where you've made the change. But in that database scenario, that's pretty tough because you can't tell Rails, ignore this column, <laughs> you know? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> not easily. Exactly, and I wonder if this is something that should come into Rails uh, or maybe into the database la layer, right? I wonder if like, you could tell maybe there's a way, or I mean, I'm pretty sure there's not a way today, but I wonder if someday we'll have a way to tell Postgres to, I don't know, have an alias of a column, for instance, or something crazy like that. That, that, that seems like something that could potentially be wedged into the ORM. You know, active, active, active Record could help you with something like that. Yeah, I could just define like a dummy method there for that particular field that accepts the assignment but throws it away, you know. 
Right. Yeah. I'm pretty sure. Yeah. Active record would be a great place to, to have more compatibility with those changes. I would love to see this. So, so it, in, in your, in your RailsConf talk, Pedro, you, you mentioned something about NoSQL and I, but, uh, I don't think you spent much time on it and I, and I'm curious, I'm curious what ha, have you been seeing, uh, some of this stuff going with, uh, no, NoSQL database driven applications. Is it, does it have like a whole different set of problems to worry about or is it easier or? Right. We have uh, some experience with NoSQL at Heroic. We definitely use Redis a lot. Mongo, we had some apps on it. Uh, and now we're trying DynamoDB, Red Amazons. Uh, it's like a key value storage, right? Mm -hmm. uh, so in my experience, uh, you don't have the schema problems that you have with, uh, with your, you know, a, a transactional database, but you still have the data manipulation problem, right? So you, for sure you can drop a field without having issues. Mm -hmm. uh, but if you want to rename a field, then suddenly you have to find a way to uh, to change the existing records, right? Uh, and in the talk I showed us, the, uh, the pattern for renaming a column uh, in a traditional database is to add a new one, write to both, uh, and then at some point you can cut it and, and just read from the new one, right? Right, yeah. So I, f I feel like in my experience for NoSQL, you still have to apply the same principle. You don't have the, the issue with the schema, but your data is still presents the same constraints, right? Yeah, and the yeah, you know, I I find it interesting that you know a lot of people look at NoSQL and they they think oh it's schemaless I don't have to worry about schema migrations anymore. <laughs> <laughs> and really, that, it just means that's that, one way to think about it. <laughs> yeah, really, it me, really, it means you have to think about them forever rather than just right. at the moment you're running migrations. Right. So. Oh wow, that's a great way to put it. Yeah, at least until you've tra fully transitioned off of that schema, right? Mm -hmm. Right. So yeah, that's that's kind of tricky stuff. But I I, I want to know about troubleshooting. That you know what what can go wrong and and you know what do you need to be prepared to deal with? If you if you don't address the the issues that come with with uh, yeah running uh, most versions of your app. Yeah yeah I mean you know, you know what what I I this seems like a, like pretty complicated stuff and I'm, I I know that you know you're. You know, in your in your talk, you covered a whole lot of material, but I I expect that there's a whole bunch of learning that went into discovering that material, oh. and a whole and a whole bunch a whole bunch of issues you tripped over. So, you know, what what are some of the things that that we should be prepared to deal with when we are trying this out for the first time? Right, right. Yeah, that's a great question. So uh, I even posted on the talk, like, I think we, until a year ago, uh, pretty much, we we're, were doing, like, uh, maintenance to, to deploy migrations to Heroku, right? So we would put a status post, and then take the API offline, run migrations, and put it back. Uh, I think the last one was a year ago. Uh, and after that, we just had one maintenance window to, to go from Postgres 9.0 to 9.1. But that was it. So I guess uh, until that point, uh, you know, we are just doing maintenance to because we're learning, right? We're not confident that we could deploy all the time uh, without downtime. Uh, and some of the things that we, we notice, I guess, uh, the first thing you will see, of course, are exceptions, right? You see a lot of PG errors or MySQL errors or whatever database you use. Uh, and if you have something like AirBrake or Exceptional, you definitely get the email, uh, sorry, you get definitely get emails about those. Uh, and, you know, you get this email when you're deploying and this exception will never show up again. So the tendency is to not give too much attention to those, right? Until until you're at a level that you you're handling pretty much every exception that you get, right? Uh, so exception is definitely the first one. Uh, but then, like I said, with assets, it gets it gets pretty complicated because now suddenly it's not an error, but it's a 404. Uh, and then this one, I feel like people they they first realize about this when a customer complains or when a customer cannot understand the website or, or something like this, right? You see tweets maybe like, oh my God, this website is, is all white or they open support tickets. Uh, now on the server side, I guess the way to handle this would be to just carefully uh, have a feeling about your uh, your performance, right? Like at Heroku, we're doing a heavy work right now on, on just monitoring and, and having numbers about your servers, right? So I have a, a graph of the rate of errors in my server, uh, and you can see how I can also have a, a, like a, a chart, a live chart of 404s. So maybe during deploy, you'll see a spike in those 404s, and if, you, you know, if you're really following those numbers, you, you'll see patterns in there. But that's, of course, like pretty hard, and, and you know, I realize this is not very accessible right, for every developer. 
Yeah, the the assets issue can be really tough because all that happens is some page doesn't look like it's supposed to look like or something, right? Which is not not something we get an email for, like you said. Exactly. Unusual, right? Yeah. You know, know, one thing I've thought of in in, uh, talking with you about this is um, a lot of people like to use uh, feature flippers, you know, where you can flip the feature on or off and... and, uh, some of the feature flippers will even store like, uh, you know, whether or not that feature is currently active in the database. So then you can kind of live flip it on a running instance. And it seems like that would be pretty good for these scenarios because you could do the deploy, which is basically stage one, right? Preparing the application for the change you're going to make as long as all features deploy in an off state, right? And then yeah. you could... And then you could feature flip that on and see how things are going, right? And that's like the second stage without having to do uh, two deploys, basically. Exactly. Yeah, I'm glad you said this. We definitely use a lot of this uh, in Heroku. Uh, I didn't know about this name, feature flipper. Is that a, a pattern or is that official? I've, I've heard feature toggle as well. Okay, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I'm trying to remember what the gem is that we've, because we've had other people bring it up on the show before and I, I just can't. Off the top of oh, my head. Oh, there's there's a whole bunch of them. Yeah, there are, there are several. I, I've heard Flipper. There's also there's also the concept of feature sliders, um, which you know is which is the idea of of something that takes a little bit further and lets you decide what percentage of requests are going to see the new feature or break it up some other way. So you know decide that that certain like privileged users um, or something you know people that have opted into beta or whatever have uh, have the the feature rolled out to them rather That's, than just every, everyone. And see, that's that's a great way to get to like what Pedro was talking about with that. Try it out on a portion of users, make sure everything's going okay, right? Exactly. And I guess that's another dimension of this, uh, this right? So you can try on it uh, with new users on another server, but now with this, you're, you're trying with another users inside your code, right? You have those. It's funny how you have different ways to control this. So I'm wondering a little bit then um, with this kind of thing, and especially with continuous deployment, do do you really worry about setting up some kind of staging environment or do you just run the tests and then assume that since the test passed that it worked, that it'll work? Yeah, we definitely have a staging uh, environment for sure. Uh, but yeah, it's funny that you mentioned continuous uh, deployment. Uh, if you think about all those issues, it seems crazy that you can have a continuous deployment just deploying all your stuff all the time, right? Because you have to be very careful about what you're deploying. Uh, so like in Heroku, what we're trying to do is we, I don't have continuous deployment today, but we definitely have a, you know, we have a script that would just deploy the application without, you know, we'll do all the checks and just make sure it deploys in one instance, wait a little bit, that's again, deploy to all the rest of the fleet. Uh, so the way we're trying to address continuous deployment is before things go to master, right? So maybe uh, what we've seen like just last week is that people will open a pull request uh, and then we're, we're going to see that as a migration that it might cause problems. So we, we ended up uh, splitting the pull request into two. And then what we can do is we merge the first one, deploy that, and then merge the second, right? But suddenly you, you need to know what's the state of master before you can merge a pull request. Otherwise, you might mer- you, if you merge both of them at the same time, uh, then you are going to deploy both migrations at the same time and then you might have downtime, right? Yeah, it's funny, so. how, it's funny how the whole thing snowballs. Yeah. <laughs> exactly, I, I, wish, I really wish I had a, a great solution to tell people, but for now I'm just talking about the problem, right? And, and the, the very like medieval things we're doing to work around it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but, okay, so what about, um, you know, the, the, the big thing everyone's talking about now with, with big Rails applications is you split them up into a bunch of different services and have them all talk to each other. And are, are there any special considerations for that uh, it, you know, with uh, you know, the approach you're talking about? Oh, or, right. Uh, uh, yeah, I, I love this. This is definitely a, a recurring uh, theme for us at Heroku and I'm sure for pretty much all developers, uh, Ruby developers right now. Uh, I, I think the with APIs, uh, if you do an API right, it means you have you probably have a version on your API. You're going to establish contracts. You're not going to change them. Uh, so it's almost like you have a database that won't change, right? So changing an API in a destructive ways 
in a destructive way means bumpy diversion, right? Mm -hmm. uh, so from the consumer side of things, it's almost like you have a database that is very stable and you, you, I don't see much that you have to worry about in terms of uh, zero downtime deploys. As long as you have good regression tests on those APIs. Right, yeah. The testing part is, the, is definitely the, the, the biggest complication in there, right? We're, we're trying Artifice uh, these days to test all the distributed components, but still, I, I still feel like we don't have like a great solution for all the testing needs in a you know, distributed system, but we're definitely working a lot on that front. Do you guys have much experience, uh, you know, testing? Like, do you do you use web? Uh, what's the name? Uh, fake web, web mock, and those tools, or do you use something else? I, I have used uh, fake web in the past. Yeah, web mock. Like yeah, web mock is a really nice library. Right. I use it in. Uh, usually, I use it in sort of um, conjunction with VCR. With which one? With VCR. Oh right, the one you can record, right? Yeah, nice. So, yeah. but okay, but but um, back back to the the kind of service oriented architecture style of things. Uh, it it seems like you would want to have um, sort of two versions of the of the service running at the same time internally, so that you can have your your you know, the one for the and, and you'd want to like set that up before you do the deploy for your main application. Yeah, I, I kind of feel like that's kind of one of the advantages of SOA. Now it's more complicated, but you could, you can, you know, you can refresh that service in the back end, right, mm -hmm. and get and make sure that's fine, you know. And as long as it supports both the old way and the new way, then you should be able to bounce the main app with no problem, right? So it kind of it kind of gives you that second layer and lets you make that change before you need to make that change right mm -hmm. right it does kind of introduce a question though right cuz like do you do you just if you're adding a new feature to the, the that the uh, the front end d depends on do you just um do you just rely on the fact that you're going to have that or that you're definitely going to have the the new version of the API in in production before that front end gets rolled out um, or do you also put some some fallback code in the front end for you know if if you're somehow forced to to downgrade you know to roll back a uh, a backend update um, you know do you put some some handling code in the front end that that actually checks the version of the API that's available? Oh, that that sounds like you're borrowing trouble there. <laughs> kind of, but at the same time, I mean, but if it's going to happen, though. Yeah, if you deploy your your service over here, and then you have your main app over here, and when you roll the main app up, you see, oh, it's having a problem, and you realize that the problem is with the service over, you know, off off to one side, then you probably are going to have to roll them both back unless your main app is capable of handling the case where the the service right. gets rolled back and that particular and that means, API call isn't available anymore. And that means you actually have to have procedures in place for rolling back, you know, for a coordinated rollback. Um, well, another way you could do it, I mean, we did talk about, you know, if the, if the API on the back end is versioned, right? And so if you have, you know, you were on version two, now you're on version three. If you roll the app back, that shouldn't be a problem as long as the service still supports version two. Because if you well, roll no, no, I'm not talking about app, rolling the app back. Wait, okay, I lost it then. Sorry, give it to so, me. So it's you know I, I think the 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 case of rolling the app back is pretty well understood. I mean if you if you have a, a service you have a service you have versioned uh, APIs and um, I get what you're saying. And, you push the you know app that you know forward. and you support you support both um, you know you support all the all the versions of the API in the service. That's pretty straightforward. But but you you. Let's say you do you want to roll out a new version of the front end, which is going to depend on a new version, you know, new new features in the API in the back end. So you, you roll them both out, then those. there you discover a huge a huge problem with the uh, the service, and you you know, and you never thought about well, what do we do if the front end is is rolled out, and it's dependent on this new version of the service, but the service has to be rolled back right now. Right. So uh, I guess my preference for that scenario would be 
one of the things we've already talked about, like one, if you have feature flippers in place, then you feature flipped it to switch to version three of the service backend, right? You notice okay. the problems, you feature flip it back and assuming the app would go back to. So you would, you would put some provisions in the app for, for um, different levels of service. Prob- that would probably be my first choice and that I think, I think feature flippers help solve a lot of these kinds of problems. But right. even still, you should be safe to do a rollback on the front end because the old version of the app would target like version two, the previous version. And so if you rolled back, then effectively you're undoing the change in the service layer yeah. as well. I mean, I guess, I guess one of the questions this leads to is simply if you're doing a service-oriented architecture, do you kind of release your updates in lockstep you know, where it makes sense, it makes perfect sense to roll back the, the front end at the same time you roll back the services? Uh, or do you, do you let yourself, you know, have a more loose relationship with, between the releases where, where different things may get updated at different times depending on, on you know, where changes are needed? We've we got to start reading Paul Dix's book. <laughs> I know, right? Good idea. <laughs> it, it, this, is a, this is the kind of thing that seems like you, you, know, you pull out the... The, you, know, you get the new version of the service running, and then you 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 know start using it you know on a small portion of your front end servers. That, yeah, right. That I is, really like that library Avdi uh, link to. We'll put it in the show notes, but it lets you do things like that. Do portions of um, you know you try this on five percent of my users or something. Mm-hmm. Yep. So one thing that does occur to me, though, is we're talking about like one service update and one main app update at the same time. But, you know, what what if there is some uh, some crosstalk that has to happen between two or three or four services during one operation? I mean, th- then it becomes even more complicated. And yeah. Time so, for a coffee break. <laughs> <laughs> Distributed I- systems are hard. Let's go shopping. Yeah, <laughs> that's when you put up the big maintenance page. We'll be back later. <laughs> yeah, something bad happened, like what happened on GitHub yesterday. <laughs> that's, right. that's right. Yeah, it's. I mean, it's good to know that. Like, I mean, you know, there is still a lot to learn here and a lot to address these issues. I mean, you know, Pedro tells us, you know, Heroku is still struggling to figure all this out. You know, and. And uh, we still see GitHub do things where they go down, you know. So it's it's good to know it's a big problem set and it's difficult and we're trying to work on it, but it's it's complicated. Yeah. Yeah. So what else, Pedro? Any other advice for us? Well, I I want to know about about like uh, visualization and and uh, you know tooling and how you see what's going on. That's a good question. <laughs> right, so Heroku, uh, right now we're using AirBrake for exceptions. Uh, and now there is a lot of things going on with logging, right? Uh, you can see uh, Mark, one of the engineers uh, working with me, uh, he gave a talk on logging uh, logging as data. Uh, I don't know if you guys are familiar with this. Uh, I don't even know what to call it, like this movement where like you don't think about logs as something that you throw out to see what's going on. You think about logs as data. So you can use, you know, you can use data transformation, data analysis tools on your logs uh, to see what's going on with your system, right? So we're using Splunk right now uh, and a few other tools we have in parallel. So basically the API, the Heroku API has a stream. We, we log a bunch of things, right? Like we, in, any request will produce like easily like 10, 12 lines of, of logging. Like, you know, that is a log that is the generic uh, request. Like what was the status? Who is the user? What is the app? Uh, what is the path? Uh, and then once you get deeper to the controller, let's say you're adding a config bar to your app. So you have a login that, you know, user one, app two, added a config bar to the app. Uh, and now all this string of logs is going to different tools. Uh, one of the tools is converting, the, converting those logs and throwing them uh, on Graphite, uh, which is a great tool to visualize your logs over time, uh, give you some introspection into, you know, patterns and what's going on uh, over the time. Uh, and then... Uh, this, the same log also go to Splunk so we can do some ad hoc queries like you know that if there is something going on that is wrong I want to see uh, let's say the API is low right one of the things we do quickly is like I want to see by the path you know which which path is lower or are they always low right 
So this kind of like investigation work happens on Splunk uh, and then Graphite definitely helps you just monitoring things over time. Do you actually store like the version of whatever it is that you're logging against so that you can see we deployed version 2.2 or whatever. And so now, you know, these, these metrics are, you know, this logging refers to this other thing after you deploy. Exactly. We definitely do that. So the, in fact, there's no way to log without this, right? So every log has the, the component name, uh, I guess the host name, <clears throat> the process PID, and the version that it's running. Uh, so definitely uh, we can see uh, trains over different versions and, and track those down if, if something weird happens. What do you use for the version number? Do you actually version your, your services or do you actually go in and use like the Git hash or whatever? Right now we do a sequential uh, version number. Um, so yeah, it just keeps incrementing this every time we deploy, right? Okay. So every time you deploy, so this is deploy 455 or whatever. Exactly, yeah. And then we have a, we have a little tool, a little script that will basically do the whole uh, deployment uh, workflow, right? So we will, it will grab master, uh, make sure the specs pass or whatever, the part is still figuring that out. But then capture a new branch, like see what's the, the latest sequence, capture that, push to our Git mirror, uh, deploy that to staging, run the integration test, then deploy to one instance in production, uh, run some of the integration tests, like wait some time to see if some exception will come out, right? And then we deploy to the rest of the fleet. Right. That's, that's pretty cool what you're talking about, uh, using the logs as more computer data than human data. And I, I know Heroku's done a lot here. We had a talk recently at uh, our local Ruby users group and one of the Heroku employees was showing how even those services like uh, checking server status, uh, check HTTP, uh, has been written to, to throw just basically this log line of key value pairs that then, like you said, can be used with something like Splunk. Uh, and, and really cool when you combine that with like syslog and aggregating it on central servers and stuff like that. But it kind of disappointing that we haven't seen a lot of good tooling for that yet. I mean, uh, Splunk is ridiculously expensive, right? Which you almost have to be Heroku to afford, right? <laughs> right. Yeah, it's definitely a shame. Uh, Splunk is super expensive, and then not. Uh, I don't know of any open source tool that can easily replace it. Unfortunately, uh, one that I know that it's is in the works at least is called Logstash. Uh, it's, it's a tool, what's his name, uh, Jordan Cicel, I think. He, he's writing this open source tool that it's aiming to be a, a Splunk-like, uh, you know, log introspection and log uh, analysis tool. Uh, so definitely, I would definitely check the status on that one. I know, I, I think I heard GitHub is trying this out, and I, I know some people are trying this tool, and hopefully soon we'll have a, a pretty strong uh, option in there. Right, that makes sense. So one other thing that, that comes to mind with deployment that we, uh, um, I, I don't know how much we really touched on it, but what about um, deploying new servers? So uh, something like Chef or Puppet or whatever, um, you know, setting that up, setting up the third party software that we're going to use, be that, you know, the database engine or a queuing system or things like that. H how do you manage all of that? And, and I guess from there, you just register it with the load balancer and pull it into the mix. Exactly, yeah. Uh, I'm not super familiar with how we set up instances at Heroku. Uh, we have a team that is all dedicated to that we call Foundation. Uh, so they give us the basic instances we need. They, they deal with Amazon APIs and you know, they provide like an API that Heroku kernel components talk to. Uh, but now uh, uh, they do use Chef uh, to set up the instances. Uh, and then it's just like you said, after we have an instance app, we add to, to the load balancer. Uh, we start tracking those, uh, and we make sure that all deploy scripts and all the, the tools we have uh, are aware of this instance, right? Uh, but yeah, there's definitely a lot of value in having something sitting between uh, your components in Amazon, right? So you can have this abstraction layer working for you. Right. Are there any other questions that we have? It's about time to get to picks anyway. I just want to say it's... Cool stuff. Thanks for coming and talking to us about it, Pedro. It's more complicated than you think at first glance, you know. Right on. Yeah. Thank you, guys. It's yeah. It's a yeah. I, I just say like 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 doing the Olympics. Yeah. You know, 
the, the most impressive thing is making something really hard look easy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Anyway, th- 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 thanks for coming on. It was great. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, thanks a lot. All right, let's get to the picks. Um, Avdi, you want to start us off? Sure. Uh, so something Josh tweeted the other day reminded me of one of my favorite uh, programming essays of all time. Uh, it's an s. Well, uh, to start, uh, everyone's probably familiar at this point with with um, uh, Paul Graham's famous essay, "Hackers and Painters," where he he draws a parallel between programmers and and painters. Um, but the somebody else wrote a uh, an answer to that called "Dabblers and Blowhards," which is one of the funniest. Uh, programming essays I've ever read and it points out all the ways in which programmers are not like painters uh, and it's from the perspective of somebody who's been both a professional artist and a professional programmer so it's a good read um, for a uh, less developer oriented pick uh, I was recently reminded that the uh, one of my favorite bands They Might Be Giants has been turning out a series of of children's CDs lately, uh, CDs and DVD combinations actually, and uh, um, you know I've been following They Might Be Giants for years, and I guess they they realize that uh, that their audience is, is people like me who are who are you know getting old and having kids at this point. Um, <laughs> anyway, we uh, we. I as soon as I was reminded of that, I went and, and got uh, three of these uh, children's CDs they've made. Uh, here come here come the ABCs, here come the one two threes, and here comes science. And the the our little ones have just been eating them up. They love it. And the great thing about it is that we can put them on, and nobody on in the house objects to it because uh, from from little kids to to teenagers to adults, we all love they might be giants. So um, uh, if you if you have kids. Uh, or even if you don't, uh, check out some of uh, TMBG's children's CDs. Awesome. Yeah, who doesn't love They Might Be Giant? All right, James. Plus one. Yeah, plus one. They Might Be Giants. James, what are your picks? Uh, okay, so um, if there's a theme at Ruby Rogues recently, uh, I think you're going to see that it's kind of uh, SOA. I mean, it came up in the discussion today. Um we're going to have a talk uh, on hexagonal rails pretty soon. That's it's going to come up again, and uh, we're reading the service-oriented architecture design and rails, or whatever the book title is. Um, the next book we choose needs to have a shorter title. I'm telling you. Oh no, I know, I know what the next book is, and it has a long title too. Ah, we keep picking long titles. Um, anyways, uh, so I've been kind of looking into this uh, SOA thing quite a bit because it keeps coming up, and. Um, there is an absolutely excellent set of blog posts on Songkick's SOA architecture. And it's like four blog posts. Uh, you know, they don't take you very long to read. Uh, maybe 30 minutes you can set aside and you can go through all four of them. And they're just ridiculously insightful. Um, like uh, they talk about how the services reflect how the data is used rather than how it's stored. Um, and, and things like that. Uh, they show uh, in these uh, articles, they, they started with a big monolithic uh, uh, Rails application and they're moving to a service-oriented architecture. So they actually show you how they did that. Uh, and it's a really cool bit of refactoring where they basically just uh, introduced one layer of indirection and then slowly uh, replace what's behind that uh, layer of indirection, which is really awesome. So, um, anyways, great series of articles. Don't take very long to read, uh, and it'll definitely uh, get you up to speed on some of the things that we uh, are talking about, will be talking about, etc. Uh, so that's my first pick. My second pick is uh, like Avdi, I'm getting old and having kids. So, uh, and and I too am interested in showing them cool science stuff. And if you want to do that, um, there is this YouTube channel uh, that is called Sick Science, uh, and it's really awesome. They're really short videos about uh, usually under two minutes 
they show you some cool sciencey like trick that you can do with items you probably have in your kitchen or could easily pick up on the next trip to the grocery store. It, is that the one where he made the, the soap bubbles full of fog from CO2 or from dry ice? Uh, yes, that's right. And used okay. it to blow out a, blow out a candle. <laughs> yeah. 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 That that's in there. There's, um, he makes a color wheel and then spins it really fast to show you how, uh, colors combine. He'll do things like show you how to make, uh, fake blood for Halloween. Uh, today he had one about, uh, cabbages and, uh, using red cabbages like a base. And then you could drop like acids or bases into it and it would switch to different colors just really cool stuff that that is pretty easy to do. Um, so uh, if you have kids, they'll, they'll probably get a super big kick out of it, and you can kind of learn things as you do it. So awesome, awesome entertainment education for kids. So those are my picks. Awesome. I have a question for you, James. You said that you're getting old and having kids, and I have to ask you, do you have to do one to do the other? <laughs> you don't have to, but... Uh, it, it, the older you get, maybe the more likely it becomes or something like that, right? Until it starts becoming less likely again. Right, yeah. They, <laughs> That's what I was you, thinking. Then you cross some threshold and it goes back the other way, right? Uh, yeah. All right, Josh, what are your picks? Uh, the mute button. <laughs> okay. It comes uh, up every few weeks, doesn't it? <clears throat> Yeah. So uh, reaching a couple hours into the future, my pick, first pick is the iPhone 5. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. <laughs> yeah, it's just great. Uh, the, How did he know that? <laughs> yeah, just, uh, okay. The, um, let's see. So uh, I, I've been uh, getting a, a page set up for uh, you know launching an app. And I, uh, you know, I knew about LaunchRock and I tried that out and I didn't like uh, like using it all that much. I mean, it's really easy to set up, but it wasn't all that flexible. So I found this other uh, service called Kickoff Labs, and they, I, I like their product uh, a fair bit more than LaunchRock. It, it's a similar kind of thing. You can you know, easily set up a page and collect user signups you know, before your app is ready to go. But they they have a really nice integration, and they have good metrics, and the the CSS is much easier to customize, that kind of thing. And the, the company's really responsive, and um, the, so I've, I've been pretty happy with that. Um, the, let's see, the, the, uh, my other pick is, I've, I've mentioned before um, the uh, Food Lo Lovers Primal Palette. It's uh, my niece and her fiancé. They wrote this book uh, called Make It Paleo. I mentioned that a long time ago as a pick. They have some new stuff that they're offering now. And I haven't – I've been loving their cookbook. I, I, I love cooking stuff out of that. But I, I haven't really gone paleo yet. But I'm thinking about doing it after the madness of Goguruko is done. And I can actually think about making that kind of significant change to how I eat. Uh, but they have this new um, ebook out, which is a 30-day intro to paleo, which, uh, which I'm kind of excited about trying. And, they, and then they also have this uh, 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 an, a, a free app for the iPhone and for the Android that has uh, basically the, all the ingredients uh, and shopping lists for all of the recipes in their Make It Paleo cookbook. So it's, it's almost like getting a free version of their cookbook. Uh, and that's called, I think that's called My Kitchen. So they have, uh, I'm just going to put a link to their, here's all of our books page. That'll probably be the easiest thing for people to find in their show notes. But they're at primal-palette.com. So, awesome. Yeah, so that's my picks for, for this. And then, uh, you know, wish me all luck with Gogoruko, and soon I'll be picking our conference videos. <laughs> oh, oh, actually, I have one last pick, and that's um, at Steel City Ruby Conference uh, uh, last month. Corey Haynes did a really nice talk. It was the first talk for the conference, and Steel City was uh, billing itself as the, the best first conference for Ruby developers. And Corey started it off with a talk about how to get the most out of your conference experience. So I recommended that everyone who was coming to Gogoruko and it was their first conference go watch that video. And everybody else who's going to a, a conference for the first time, I recommend you watch the video too. And it's up on Confreaks. It's a half hour and it's, uh, it's a nice talk. 
talk. Corey's a, a great speaker and it's always a pleasure to watch him do a talk. So that's it. I'm done. Cool. All right. So I, have a, I have a question. When will yeah. Josh be fixing dinner for the Ruby Rose? When you all come to San Francisco. Uh, okay. Just checking. All right. So my, my picks, um, I'm, I'm going to do a couple of them that are just kind of equipment things that I have ordered off of Amazon. They should be arriving today. In fact, all of them should be. Um, the, the first one is we had a, the power go out here like a week and a half ago. And when it came back on, it fried our TV, um, which didn't make my wife very happy because that's one of the ways that she gets some sanity when the kids are home from school. So anyway, um, I went ahead and ordered some surge protectors. It's kind of funny because uh, we were having this discussion, um, my wife and I were, and she's like, well, you know, I don't want surge protectors up there because she's thinking the power strips um, and that for some reason she had conflated power strips and surge protectors, which isn't always, you know, the surge pro- or the power strips don't always have surge protectors in them. And so um, I've ordered a couple that are just uh, basically plug bricks that you just plug in and they kind of stick out of the wall a little bit, but aren't more cords up by where the TV is. And so um, I'll put links to the ones that I bought in the show notes. And I, I, it also kind of freaked me out a little bit because my computer is plugged into one that does have a surge protector in it, but you know, it, it still does a hard shutdown when it, when the power goes out. And so I also ordered a UPS and so I'll put a link up to that as well. Um, and, uh, those are just kind of some things that I've been fiddling with. One other thing that I purchased, I don't know if I picked this last week or not. I just can't remember. And I not really going to willing to go look. So if I picked it last week, I'm sorry, but anyway, um, the headphone jack on my iPod has gone out or going out. And, um, I, I love listening to my iPod and I didn't really want to go buy a new one. So what I did is I went and I bought some LG tone, uh, Bluetooth headphones and it's just been really, really nice to have those. Um, the cool thing is, is that I can walk away and come back and, uh, they're still connected. And I also ordered a speaker, a Bluetooth wireless speaker, um, that just recharges off of USB that I'm going to be putting in my office so that, you know, again, I can listen to the the iPod when I'm in here, but it's nice because I can pair it with other, um, other devices whenever I'm out and about. So anyway, um, those are my picks. Pedro, do you have some picks for us? Uh, yeah, for sure. Uh, one is a talk It's not particularly uh, new, but it's a talk by Brandon keepers from GitHub called, uh, why our code smells. <laughs> and I think, uh, it brings a lot of this stuff. Like if you read a lot of books, I'm sure you, you know, already uh, a lot of the things in there, but I, I really like how he put those things together. Uh, so it's funny. It, it actually, actually talks a little about the, the stuff you, you guys talked about before with Steve and Nat on uh, growing object oriented software by tests. Uh, he also touched a little the book that after wrote uh, objects on rails, um, and then just stuff like refactoring and uncle Bob. So like he all, he puts this all together in a way that I really liked. Uh, and he, I, I think in particular, because it's, it's very, uh, it's very like contextual for rails developers. So he gives like examples, examples from GitHub. Um, and uh, yeah, I think it was, it was a good talk. Uh, the second one is a project I was checking out yesterday, actually called Zeus. Uh, so it, it's a it's an open source project in Go that will load your Rails app in memory. Uh, and the idea is that you, you run that once, and then if you need access to your Rails app again, it's ready. The process is already running, so it's super quick. Uh, I was playing with that yesterday. Uh, maybe you know it's probably super early to tell, but I think there's a lot of potential in there for like faster specs, faster rig tasks, and all this stuff. Awesome. That's it. All right. Well, one thing we forgot to do at the beginning of the show that we need to do is the this week on Parlay. I'll uh, do it. Okay. <laughs> that <Okay>. was fast. <laughs> <laughs> oh, 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 pick me, pick me. <laughs> no, I, I cheated. I was looking it up since we had been talking about it, so I, I cheated. <laughs> um. Uh, on Parlay, there's lots of good discussions lately, but uh, one of my favorites is um, we had a relatively uh, less experienced programmer who's used to writing, uh, you know, 20, 30 line scripts um, 
come on and ask, you know, uh, now I'm moving into scripts that are getting bigger and bigger. They're reaching the uh, 300 and 400 line range. You know, is this the time when I start introducing objects and how do I do that? Why do I do that? Uh, it sparked a really interesting discussion about uh, the things he would gain and, uh, you know, it, you know, it does it add more overhead and things like that. Uh, but then it spawned a whole nother thread uh, that got into pair programming and uh, why you should be doing that and how people do that and the tools they use for that, like uh, screen sharing versus like, you know, shared Tmux uh, setups and stuff like that. So uh, just this one uh, question led to, uh, I think, two very interesting uh, discussions on, uh, you know, when when is the right way to transition and what can we learn from each other and stuff like that. Uh, all great discussions that we're having on the Parlay mailing list right now. Awesome. Yeah, I, there's there's awesome stuff there. And that's definitely one of the things that was my favorite, too. So anyway, let's wrap this show up. Um, thanks, Pedro, for coming again. And uh, we'll we'll be on next week talking about more awesome stuff. Who do we have next week? Nobody yet to be determined. OK, I will start sending emails willy nilly to line up somebody cool that or we'll just pick a topic off our list. But yeah. We're done. Okay, cool. Awesome.